Well, as you sit, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to the epistle of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We began this series a few weeks ago, and it has been a true blessing to our souls to consider the wonderful truths of God's Word. This morning, our text is going to be 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we gather now to consider your word. We pray that your spirit would open its glorious truths into our hearts and minds, that we would have great joy as we receive it, as we see Christ in these pages, as we see your wonderful work, O God, in and amongst your people. Lord, we we praise you for these things, and we pray that we would be encouraged and even convicted, challenged and comforted by these very words. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant and infallible word of God, written for you and for me today. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved in Christ, when we see evidence of divine grace in the lives of others, it's an occasion for giving great thanks, isn't it? We're grateful for the Lord's mercy in their lives and are moved to express that in thankful praise to Him. This thankfulness is even heightened as we recognize the struggles and and the lures and the pitfalls that they may be wrestling with, and yet we are encouraged by the light of Christ's grace in and among them. And this was true of Paul's heart toward Corinth, wasn't it? As Paul opens this letter, he he not only wanted the saints to know that he was thankful, but he also wanted them to know wonderful details of Christ's work for them. For grace was given to them by Christ. 
Christ enriched them in everything, especially in the spiritual gifts that he had given them. The gospel of Christ was confirmed in them, Paul said. The Corinthians were to serve Christ diligently as they waited for his promised return. They were to do this knowing that the Spirit was also in the work of preserving them to the end. God's promise was to present them blameless in the day of Christ. And Paul also encouraged them to have great joy in their calling by the faithful God into the fellowship of Christ, their Lord. Wonderful things there. Wonderful things to unpack. Wonderful things for them to grasp. Same for us today. And so we as God's people here in this place today should likewise be blessed and grounded in this glorious knowledge that Paul had shared. For these truths and promises are a sure foundation for the believer's joy and a fertile soil for change and growth and spiritual maturity. We too are strengthened by the knowledge of God's truth and promises, aren't we? Remember Jude's benediction in Jude 23 and 24, where he says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And what a wonderful foundation that this truth, even here in Jude, connected with what Paul is saying there in 1 Corinthians, what a wonderful foundation that undergirds in what Paul was about to guide and correct these saints in. This guidance and correction is where Paul dives into in our text this morning. And as I've mentioned before, the Apostle Paul will address many things in this letter. But where he begins is the matter of unity in the church. Unity in the church. And so let's consider Paul's plea for unity in verse 10. His concern about the reports of contentions that were in the body in verses 11 and 12. And his concern about division in the church in verses 13 through 17. Look at me there in verse 10a. What does he say? He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we consider this plea, note two things. Paul doesn't start by rattling off the details of his instruction here. He could, if he wanted to. But this is important. Take note. He first makes the tone and the intensity and the urgency of his upcoming words clear in the form of a plea. Paul makes a plea, an appeal. He exhorts them to godliness within the body. And secondly, he makes this plea, notice, by the name of Jesus Christ. The saints needed to know, as do we, that Paul wasn't about to speak on his own authority, but also in the authority of Christ himself, the great head of the church who, who speaks to and nurtures and directs all things in his church. Paul was concerned about these things because Christ is concerned about the same. These are Christ's words to his people. 
And thus the saints should give serious and focused attention to what he has to say. And let's pay attention ourselves as well as we consider these words. Now, if I were to ask you, what should be a primary focus or concern for the health and well-being of the church? What would you say? If I were to ask you, what should be the primary concern? What should be our primary focuses? If you were to say, a healthy and well-off church has this type of grounding or focus, what, what would you put in there? What would your answer be? What needs to be present and nurtured and maintained in Christ's church? Well, a big one is unity. A big one is unity. Unity in the church was Paul's primary concern with Corinth. And in fact, many of the problems Paul addresses in this letter point to a spirit of dissension that was in the body as well as was in the community around them. Beloved, unity that is built on Christ in the church is an essential bedrock piece of every faithful congregation. Not to mention this young church in Corinth. Remember, this was a very young church. Paul wrote this letter when they were about three years old. Right? As a congregation. And so we must never lose sight of this. Or forget that unity must be nurtured and protected and maintained and even restored where needed. Don't think that we are exempt from the need for such protection or maintenance in our body. Because that's exactly what Satan would like, right? Even the corruptions of our own flesh and the pride that may arise within, Satan would love for us to get relaxed and to get very uh, laid back and even lazy about the relationships in the body and the unity that needs to exist founded in Christ because that's a great way and a great time for him to drive the wedges and to try to break things apart. And if you think about that, sometimes we may think about Corinth and we don't, yeah, they were really young. And here are these things that already crept in. But what is also true? The Lord Jesus Christ, the great king and head of his church, comes to his people through Paul. And he says, hey, we need to put these things back together the way they should be. We need to be grounded and standing and united in me and Christ. As you should be. So what does... Paul say that this unity should look like. Look at verse 10b. He says that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Right? So Paul identifies two broad pieces here. First, that divisions or sects or sectarianism has no place in the body of Christ. If it's not there, keep it out. If it is there, get it out. Right? If it's not there, keep it out. But if it is there, get it out. But secondly, he points out here that part of the remedy to division 
Is our spirit-wrought commitment and practice of unity being joined together in speech and in thought and in judgment? And this was important for the Corinthian church as division had already taken root in their midst. Now Corinth wasn't the only church who took benefit from such exhortation, were they? Paul said something similar to the church in Philippi. In Philippians 2, 1 through 4, if you want to turn with me there, you can. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. There we read, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. My friends, an important piece of the work of unity is in the spirit of humility. John Calvin said this, regarding this passage in Philippians 2. He said, There is an extraordinary tenderness in this exhortation, in which he entreats by all means the Philippians mutually to cherish harmony among themselves. Lest in the event of their being torn asunder by intestine contentions, they should expose themselves to the impostures of the false apostles. For when there are disagreements, there is invariably a door open to Satan to disseminate impious doctrines, while agreement is the best bulwark for repelling them. See that? Congregations of the Lord Jesus Christ need to cherish harmony. Calvin's right about that, isn't he? Scripture teaches us that. Paul's even pointing to this. They cherish harmony among themselves. It's valued. It's important. But also, notice that he says here that agreement, that unity, is the best bulwark in repelling them. And that's true too, isn't it? In unity, there is safety. Right? There is safety in unity. And that's important for every congregation to remember as well. So what does having the same speech or, or being of the same mind and joined together in these ways, as Paul told Corinth, what does that mean? Well, it means having minds that are committed to running in the same direction, right? You're not going over here and I'm not going over there. No, we're running in the same direction, pursuing the truth of God in peace with one another. We submit ourselves to the word of God and we press forward together. We need to have the same love, the, the love of Christ, and that love in practice amongst ourselves and in our lives. Right? It's not just a cognitive exercise. That we say that we love Jesus and we love his people, but we never show it. And it's not evident in the relationships that we have amongst and with each other in the body. So remember... If we have no love, we can walk together and still find something to fight about. 
Eventually, we will find something that rubs us wrong and we'll dwell on it, we'll not deal with it, and let it turn into a bone of division and contention. And that creates a huge problem, doesn't it? When we're not doing things biblically to resolve issues that arise amongst us. Matthew Henry said this, In the great things of religion, be of a mind, but when there is not a unity of sentiment, let there be a, a union of affections. The consideration of being agreed in greater things should extinguish all feuds and divisions about minor ones. That would be a good lesson for Corinth. It's a great lesson for us. For there was a bone of contention that was present in Corinth. A bone of contention that led to great division. Notice what Paul says in verse 11 as he addresses his concern about the contention. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. My friend, pride has reared its ugly head in the congregation to where they were quarreling and bickering with each other. It's true that churches everywhere have to deal with the temptation to quarrel when there is a disagreement, right? But also resist the temptation to have a spirit of contentiousness. And to avoid those who have a desire and are looking to start a fight, to ignite a fire. And even maybe that's what, that's what dominates their interests as you consider their actions and their words within the body. They're fire starters. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says this. By pride comes nothing but strife. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Consider that. The root of strife, the root of contention, the root of quarreling and bickering with each other and arguing is pride. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.14, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. It's a great problem. I think we could agree that it's a great problem for those who are speaking such things, right? Who are striving with words to no profit, who are engaging in these types of things, but it's also a problem, and it's damaging, and it's hurtful for those who are hearing it. Let's see their ruin. This type of striving, these types of quarrels, these types of contentions have no place in the body of Christ. Paul also said to Timothy, uh, just a few verses later in, in 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 through 23, he said this, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But notice verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. We need to go in and live life as a body in a congregation. We need to live life with our eyes wide open, and not only eyes wide open, but with our heads full of the knowledge of God. 
The, the Lord graciously not only teaches us how to fix these things and how to resolve these things by his grace and by his spirit, but he also gives us the warning signs. He shows us the roots of the issues so that we can take an axe and hack those roots and kill it before the fruit comes. Know that Scripture teaches that quarreling is the way of the fool. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is honorable for a man to stop striving, since any fool can start a quarrel. It's honorable for a man to stop striving, since any fool can start a quarrel. Now, many of us have experience with contention, don't we? Maybe with friends or family, a time or two. Maybe even in your own marriage. But what does contention do as you think back to those experiences and times and occasions? What does it do? It puts people in their corners against each other. Think about it in your life and that of your family. Has pride gotten the better of you in your relationship with others? Have you, or are you even now, rushing down the path of the fool, according to Solomon, in your quarrels? Or are you seeking to walk the honorable path, to, to stop striving? Right? And notice those words here that Solomon uses. Right? The honorable man seeks to stop striving. Striving has been engaged, it's going on, but he's putting the brakes on it. That's the honorable thing to do. Sometimes we're in quite a bit of a mess. And we don't know that we're even in it. And we don't know how to get out of it. But here the Lord tells us. Corinth struggled with walking the path of the fool, didn't they? And what were the saints there quarreling about? What did... Paul say the source of their quarrels was their ministers. They were quarreling over their ministers. They were arguing about who they liked best and who they followed. None of the pastors who ministered in their midst at various times had any remote interest of being part of a personality contest. But yet Paul heard that such a contest had been fueled and all of them were already taking sides. And he was saying, that has to stop. That has to stop. See what he says in verse 12. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. So at this point, the saints would have agreed with Paul, right? Yeah, we say that. Sure. That's what I believe. What of it? Some said Paul, perhaps because he was a great spiritual teacher. Maybe that's what they valued in him. Others followed Apollos, perhaps because he was a great speaker. Others said Cephas, right? But Cephas is the other name for Peter. Maybe because of his age, his wisdom as a minister. But still others were for none of them but Christ only. 
And yet Paul's point here is that God sent his ministers there to point people to and to help them grow in being disciples of Christ and his word. They were all for Christ, not self, let alone rival each other. They had no intention or desire to be rivals. Even to make Christ and his own apostles competitors. How dare the Corinthian people? What were they doing? What were they thinking? But remember this. Pride will carry Christians so far in opposition to each other. When pride goes unchecked and undealt with in the heart and even in relationships, it will take us to those kinds of ends. Know it and believe it. Or how could they get into such battle corners as this? How could that even happen? Sin, pride, arrogance. But Paul would set the matter straight with three simple and powerful questions that really strike to the heart, right? That they hit him in the core. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? That's a good enough question to answer. And to chew on that answer and to think about that answer and to be convicted about that answer alone. But he goes on, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? My friends, the answers to each of these is a resounding no. No, is Christ divided? No, there is but one Christ. The Lord, the Savior, and the head of his church. And to be divided into factions in the church contradicts the nature of the church. The Christ has designed us and made us to be many members in one body. And this is what Paul will expound on in, uh, later on in the epistle in chapter 12, verse 12, when he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. He again provides a, a sweet and a wonderful uh, companion verse here to what he's just said. Right? And that question, is Christ divided? No. No, he's not. Was Paul crucified for them? Was he their sacrifice for atonement? Did Paul ever pretend to be their savior? No, he didn't. And no, he wasn't. Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified and rose from the dead for them and their salvation, was the only one the Corinthian saints should follow. He's the only one. Were they baptized into Paul's name? No, they weren't. Those who he baptized were baptized in the name of the triune God. See how these questions and their answers show the absurdity of the party spirit that was in the church. But Paul wasn't playing the party game. Right? He wasn't walking the party line. His intent was to break up the party. 
His intent was to break up the party. Or rather, parties, plural, to be said. In fact, he goes on to share details of why the Corinthians couldn't say that they were baptized in his name in verses 14 through 16, doesn't he? Where he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And why? Look at verse 15. Lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. And clearly there were likely some who were saying that. But they were lying. That was wrong. Because he never did. Verse 16. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now remember... Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue whose conversion is recorded in Acts 18. And Gaius was Paul's travel companion that we read about in Acts 19.29. But also the household of Stephanas, they were Paul's first converts in Corinth. And this is why he mentions them by name. They were Paul's first converts in Corinth who were respected for their dedication. Stephanus was also one of the men who brought word from the Corinthian congregation to Paul. But then notice what he says in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now that's a packed verse in and of itself. Some of you may be thinking, well, now, now wait a minute, Pastor. Paul just said that he baptized some people in the congregation. How can he say that he wasn't sent to do so? Well, clearly Paul is speaking of his primary duty in his call and mission as an apostle and as a minister of the gospel. Yes, Paul baptized. Be faithful to the Great Commission. But Jesus sent Paul as a herald of the gospel of Christ and him crucified. Not with the rhetoric, notice, not with the rhetoric and the wise words of men that the Corinthians had come to value, but with the pure and the simple truth of the message that the proclamation of Christ crucified would be powerful and not foolish, as some claim. And we'll see him go on and expand on that in the message of the cross that we consider next week, Lord willing. I'll leave you with this this morning. As much as Corinth needed to have a wake-up call to see the damage that the party spirit had caused among them, we too must regularly assess the presence and rise of pride in our own hearts, first and foremost, as well as in our midst, in accordance with God's word, in order to protect and to maintain the purity and the unity of our flock. Faithful churches everywhere should also be doing the same. Again, if it's not there, keep it out. And if it is there, get it out. But we also need to see the danger of contention and quarreling among ourselves. And how that displeases the Lord. How it drives wedges in relationships. How it puts people in their corners ready to fight. And quickly destroys the unity of the church. We have to, beloved. We have to 
keep that in check. Christ isn't divided. And therefore, neither should his beautiful and beloved bride, his body. But how do you deal with contentions when they try to arise? When pride takes root, love and humility gives it the boost. I know that's kind of silly, maybe sound. You'll remember it. When pride takes root, love and humility gives it the boost. We all need God's help and strength to respectfully and lovingly communicate with each other, to be humble, to submit to one another in the Lord, to repent when needed, to forgive, and to be intentionally committed to putting pride, especially in its form of the party spirit, to death. Many in the body, of, or excuse me, may the body of Christ be glorious in her beauty and unity through and through. May that be true of Christ's body and not be congregations that look healthy and united on the outside, but are broken down and full of spiritual and relational decay on the inside. To God be all the praise and the glory. For his care, his, his nurture and restoration of his flock, even through his faithful shepherds. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together.